Good day, everybody. Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily. It's a Thursday. We got some market commentary and really an introduction to a new guest, uh, never before featured on the show. However, uh, this is a gentleman I have uh, I've been connected with over the last couple of years and have followed on Twitter. Uh, for those in the resource speculation, definitely following the GDX in the gold sector, uh, you might recognize this gentleman. Uh, he goes by the Twitter handle that gray beard. Uh, but in all for respect of his uh, anonymity, we're just going to call him Joe. Uh, Joe, you and I, uh, you were one of my few quote unquote business stops while I was on uh, my trip last week to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, you were very gracious with your time. Uh, you welcomed me into your home so you and I could have some uh, FaceTime and talk shop. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank you for your time and the, you know, the opportunity to really get to know you in person here. No problem, Trevor. Thanks for having me on. Next time you come, we'll have to make sure uh, you get there a little earlier so I can make some <laughs> salmon and asparagus and uh, get some foosball and ping pong in. <laughs> I look. I look forward to it. Yeah, it was a little. It was a little bit of a late night, but uh, no harm done. Uh, but uh, Joe, in that conversation, I really got to know a little bit of like where you are in your life, but where you came from uh, professionally. And I was hoping we could kind of relive that conversation i think uh the conversation you and i had in person i was just so taken back with what you were telling me that i perhaps the second go around i'll be able to ask you better questions and do so for the listeners uh, but i'd like to just get a you know for the sake let's let's relive this conversation because you actually were a short seller in the early 2000s and can you kind of talk to us how you kind of got into this role as a short seller and, and and really why that was the path you chose? Sure. Um, I uh, grew up in Minnesota, went to school, and I was a bean counter by trade. So I was a CPA, and I started as a back office accountant for a U.S. trading desk. Actually, uh, it was the Cargill family, family money, which um, ultimately – in the 2000 after I had left, spun out as Black River Asset Management. And it was there where I got kind of the bug for, you know, Wall Street. And it was the mid-90s. And uh, it was the start of the big NASDAQ bubble. And like any irresponsible 22-year-old who didn't want to be a CPA, um, I started pitching ideas to the, the trading desk, which must have been very comical for um, seasoned traders. And I thought I was dangerous because I had learned Excel and uh, got a fax set machine. And I started running high pr price earnings and, you know, high price book screens and started pitching uh, NASDAQ stocks, which um, all would go up even more from 1996 to 1999. Thankfully, they never took any of my ideas. And uh, that was that. And then uh, ultimately, like every back office person, uh, we wanted to get onto the trading desk, and I scored one of the jobs on the trading desk as a peon. And uh, I was there through the long-term capital blow-up in 98, um, when Russia devalued the movable capital controls were in place. And I watched how business models implode and how trades go awry. And it ultimately um, led to going to New York and joining a, a, a bank right as everyone was firing people. And I ended up working for one of the best guys 
and pioneers in the hedge fund to fund business. So not directly in hedge funds, but the big banks that allocated money to hedge funds. And when I got there, again, naturally, no one wanted to work on short sellers. And I thought it was my easiest route to kind of, you know, moving up and trying to be uh, in the know. And uh, it's a tough strategy, but I got to know some of the, the, the brightest minds and got to sit down and interview and do due diligence on some of the legendary short sellers out there. And after four or five years of doing that, I actually ended up uh, convincing one of them to hire me in uh, 2002, 2003. So that's how I got to short selling. Mm-hmm. And so in 2003, and this really, th- this is where the story, at least for me personally, uh, gets really fascinating because we're talking five, six years before the great financial crisis. Uh, but during this time, Joe, you were laying the groundwork on really shorting the banks. Uh, and I would, you know, just from a book cover's point of view, say that you were probably one of the true uh, ground, you know, groundbreakers here laying the framework on why the banks, even five years before the great financial crisis, uh, you you were a little pessimistic about about them. Can you give us what you were, what were you seeing in 2003? that made you believe that sure. maybe the banks were getting ahead of themselves? Yes. So I was, I was an analyst again at, at uh, one of the few short only hedge funds out there. And uh, the, my boss, uh, the woman I worked for was uh, very bright and she had started to formulate kind of the web of uh, issues that were going to probably unfold uh, much of which was kind of born out of the uh, 1999 2000 time period um, when the you know the Reuben Summers Greenspan try you know triumphant uh, they kind of gutted um, a lot of the, the financial regulatory uh, regimes you know leverage rules and uh, pushback on Brooksy Bourne I think was her name who headed the CFTC. And anyway, her, her view was that there were just way too many holes um, in the, the financial sector. And we started with the first model she had me build was Fannie Mae. She was kind of convinced that there was probably accounting irregularities. And our focus was doing balance sheet, you know, financial modeling and looking for, you know, disclosures and 10Qs and 10Ks and off balance sheet type stuff. And we started just tracking it. And from Fannie Mae, it ended up leading into a big, what I'll call like a spoke. And it, we, we, we then went on to companies like uh, Friedman Billings Ramsey, which probably is when it really kicked into gear. And Friedman Billings Ramsey was a uh, small East Coast merchant bank who essentially, if not the creator of the subpar prime mortgage REIT model, um, certainly was a leader and brought all these companies public. And they made a lot of money and they made the mistake, or, or at first it looked like a good idea to you know keep um, big holdings in the companies in their merchant banking portfolio. Uh, and then it ultimately would lead to their demise. And so what was great is they, you know, we knew which companies they brought public and then we built models on the companies they brought public. And as time passed on, um, we essentially just shorted, you know, as many as we could. And uh, that led to 
uh, regional banks and uh, different kind of products. So we went from the subprime mortgage originators, then uh, the option arms, the ninjas, and all these different models came. And so then uh, I actually started to do SEC um, searches, which this website back then was not very good. And it was kind of like uh, one in Canada that still stinks. Um, but I was able to find a whole bunch of community banks and thrifts and SNLs that were doing option arm portfolios. And we just started shorting them. And uh, there were some great ones, uh, like Bank United down in Florida. And then we continued to just go through the food chain. And we found uh, regional banks that started to build up and have massive loan growth in construction and development loans. And that further went into what I would call even bigger regional banks, National City. Uh, and then you got into the super, super regionals like Wachovia, which, you know, bought uh, Golden West, which was 100% option arm uh, originators, and they bought them right at the top. And by the end, we had just latched on to the brokers and um, some of the guarantors of the world, AMBAC uh, and MBI, who were writing the insurance on the CDS. And um, I think a lot of people have probably seen the movie, but um, I remember the day that we, I got the, the PowerPoint presentation from Greg Lippmann from Deutsche Bank, who uh, sent out the PowerPoint on basically shorting, you know, uh, the tranches in the, these originations, and uh, it was kind of a light bulb moment. And mm. we just carried we carried the trade through all the way to the end of 2008, and it basically ended. You know, they banned short selling in the fall of 2008. Uh, stocks popped for two days. And then after that, uh, they all, you know, kind of imploded. And we essentially covered into that and went down to virtually all cash. And then mm -hmm. the end of short selling as we know it um, was there in 2009. So, so you, you really, because of the regulations put in place there, banning short selling, um, the fall of 2008, you really missed some big gains on, but some big gains because those things were going to continue to fall. Huh? Well, what was interesting is, so I was on a plane out to the, uh, the head office where I were, I was on the East coast, but the firm was on the West coast and I was in the cab going to JFK and I saw my, uh, I think I, yeah, I don't know if it was a Blackberry, but, uh, the ban happened right before the close, uh, before my flight. So I arrived in San Francisco the next morning to learn that um, they were banning short selling. And so all the stocks popped a lot. And we were on the phone with investors all that day. But what was unique is that it didn't ban you from maintaining your current short positions. So what actually ended up happening is we had a portfolio that you could not replicate. And so we were one of the few that had shorts on. Um, so we did have the two days of pain and then everything, you know, plummeted into kind of December and then ultimately one, you know, one final leg down into like February, March, and then the suspension of market-to-market uh, -market accounting and, you know, all the capital raises that the, the, the banks were able to uh, 
pull out, pull off kind of just ended it all. So it actually ended up working out okay, but those two days of the short sale ban at the beginning was pretty tough. Joe, I keep on coming back to thinking of the timing of all this, like where it all began, 2003, 2004. You're, you're, you're a couple of years after the tech bubble burst. You're a couple of years before the great financial crisis really set in with most of America. You know, you, so you really were like sandwiched right there in the middle there. What, you know, what, what was happening? It, it seems like you were one of very few companies that were really looking at shorting the banks. So, you know, can you, and, that, and the reason I'm asking this, I want to talk about the psychology. Um, you know, it was very, it seemed, it was probably an unpopular thing to do, but you stood by your convictions based on the data that you were seeing and the spokes that were kind of coming out of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Uh, can, can you talk about the psychology of standing by your convictions and actually what happens with shorting companies when it's most likely the least popular thing to do? Yeah. I mean, I was fortunate to have um, had already kind of been exposed via allocating to hedge funds. So we were picking and giving money to short sellers. And the group I was in in New York um, had a lot of respect for the work that short sellers did. So. I, the stigma for me going in, I kind of knew how, um, you know, contrarian and absurd and how you're essentially kissing in the wind, uh, for lack of a better description, because um, stocks generally mostly go up and the tailwind is always too strong. Uh, but again, the group I was in just kind of had a had a different view and, and, and saw that post-tech bubble, the Fed um, seemed committed to doing all that it could. And I mean, what's fascinating now after the financial crisis and, you know, QE and rates to zero, you know, right, you know, since the forties, none of that stuff really had, had been done. And I think a lot of people had forgotten. And the only tool back then was just to take rates down to zero. Um, mm-hmm. Psychology being a short seller. And I think people kind of forget this. Um, if, if rates are at zero, short selling business models don't work very well. Um, one, it's hard to make money and kind of operate a short only model. Two, you need the short rebate. And if rates are at zero, when you short stocks and you don't have a little cushion and a little natural positive carry from you know selling short and having the proceeds earn small rate of return, it kind of puts the business model at risk. And that was kind of what Ann did it um, really in 2009, 2010, rates were pinned at zero. Everything had blown up, and they were going to allow, you know, the, the system to to reliquify and you know raise a lot of capital. Uh, going back to Fannie Mae, the Fannie Mae was a little bit unique in that uh, you were talking about a five trillion dollar guaranteed book that they had underwritten, and they would hit their earnings by, you know, within a penny or two, and if you and they had some com- complicated uh, accounting designations, and I'm not going to go into them because I don't even really remember all of them. But one of them was uh, hedges, uh, ca- uh, hedges that for cash flow purposes, and it was it was so crazy. And you could just see how they were getting earnings to look like, you know, they would be right on expectations, which seemed almost impossible for the amount of volume and the products that they were guaranteeing. And again, it got even more interesting as we just went into Friedman, Billings, Ramsey, and each of the underlying REITs. And the combination 
of um, excessive loan growth. Uh, and we were talking about loan books that were growing 25, 30% per annum for one or two years. That kind of loan growth kind of just spells, um, you know, building concerns. Um, and then I think everybody ultimately came to the conclusion that what was happening with auction arm, I mean, it started with, you know, teaser rates and low rates, and then it went to no income, no assets, and then the auction arms, um, but it didn't stop anybody. And then the, the final kind of part of it was once they got into MBSs, which they'd always been in MBSs, but then MBSs were pulled into CDOs, and then CDOs were pulled into CDO squares, and in some cases into CDO cubes. Then finally, it was the uh, guarantors, the insurance companies underwriting the CDS. Um, that's what was kind of the powder keg. And ultimately, I, I remember our thesis was people believe that housing prices can never decline. And our view was as long once they stopped going up, they would expose the business model. So we didn't even really plan on housing prices, you know, declining 15, 20%. We just needed to stop going up because that's how Minsky's uh, Ponzi finance model just sort of, sort of kind of implodes is um, if you can't sell to the greater fool or the prices don't allow continued unfolding um, debt growth, uh, you know, the, the music mm -hmm. stopped and you got to find, find a chair. So how, how is that similar to what you're seeing now? If we stick with just the housing market, I mean, we're seeing, uh, annualized housing rates. It's like 13% rate, uh, rise in, in housing prices here. Just crazy. Uh, we're also seeing, I'm seeing headlines of uh, pension funds coming in and buying residential real estate ahead of, you know, the the common, you know, owner, you know, you know, residential owner that we would typically see. Uh, I'm also hearing news that a lot of contractors and home builders are having to basically cancel their some of their projects because people who came in early said that they just can't afford it and so projects are being stalled or, or just paused uh because the rate because prices are getting too high so i you know if you think back to what you saw uh you know 12 years ago 14 years ago compared to what the housing market is doing now what sort of similarities and contrasts are you seeing yeah so i think the similarities are um hpa is you know double digit growth and it's across so many markets um, and people feel the pressure that uh, I don't get in now, I'll never get in. But that, I mean, I think that's true for a lot of people already and almost always. Um, I'd say the one striking difference, and I've actually sort of been perversely and not feeling great about it, bullish housing and real estate, just sort of as an asset play and, uh, you know, a place place to go. Uh, the the element that's missing is kind of 2003 to 2007 was the proliferation of products that uh, were super dangerous and creative in the amount of uh, leverage. And like it or not, there just isn't that product really out there. There's not option arms 
in you know in ninja loans and you know FICO scores of you know sub six sixty getting all these um, you know hundred percent LTV loans. Um, it's to me, it's institutional investors and high net worth individuals and the people that are already have a lot of money, um, kind of stocking up and kind of chasing. I, I, I I'm sure there are middle class folks that are trying to participate and just you know secure a residence and. Mm-hmm. They'll probably be the ones that get hurt. As of now, I just don't see um, a catalyst for you know an immediate concern. I, I, I do. I, I look at prices. My neighbor just sold her house um, for a ridiculous amount of money. It's a 120 year old house, just like mine. And I see the price tag, and I know that my house is not worth that. But that's what someone's willing to pay today, mm-hmm. and they may not be willing to pay that. And two or three months. Um, but I I would say that the home builders look sort of interesting as a, I guess the word would be tactical short. I We were short so many home builders and we were in size and we rode them. I'm not at that point right now where I would say, you know, you can, you can short them down 50% and, you know, keep riding that mm-hmm. trade. So here's where our conversation gets really interesting because you expressed to me that you've got this gut feeling that there's things you saw 14 years ago in the mid-2000s that made you really start to begin to question the economy and the markets and begin shorting. You're seeing you've got that feeling and seeing similar red flags now. Um, I was hoping you could spend a little bit of time discussing what you're seeing, what those red flags are, you know, not all of them, but just, you know, kind of a few of the big key takeaways for listeners to really understand now versus what you saw back then. Sure. It's a little weird because, um, it was a point when I realized that the, the short selling mentality is just not really good for your your soul um, and your well being, and mm-hmm. it's been great to kind of just not be short and just acknowledge that you're in one of those unique periods where it's just easier to either you know sit sit on the sidelines or participate in you know whatever way your mind can handle. Unlike the period back then, that was you know. That was my my job was to you know dig into macro data and micro data and build financial models and uh, I was taught very well and we were super committed and we were 100% short you know the whole time as part of our mandate to provide protection for our institutional investors. Now, as an individual, just you know trading uh, a much smaller pile of money, um, I'm less enthused about you know committing to a lot of shorts um and i don't have the same level of confidence that i can see what is going to unravel it i have some broad brush ideas so the people complain about the fed a lot and i'm no fan of the fed but one of the great things is i stopped listening to fed calls i don't i don't read anything by them anymore it's been probably eight, 10 years. Uh, it just doesn't do me any good because they have a mandate. Um, I think they believe what they're doing is right. And it doesn't, 
help if a you know, gray-bearded guy yells at the cloud. I'm not going to make a difference, and being angry is not going to do anything. I would say the difference, I think the, the bad guy will be the SEC this time and not the Fed, and we'll eventually mm-hmm. circle back to the Fed in a decade or so, um, and the Fed quasi or very close to monetizing, you know, uh, government debt. Um, but this one seems like the SPAC, the free trading commissions, uh, the hodling, the, the crypto. I just feel like that probably is one of the areas where some of this will end where the newer age investor gets in, they enjoy some successes and then they get baptized and then they'll realize that the regulatory agencies kind of just let anybody and everybody in and which is fine, but they need, but there'll be a mob mentality and people will complain. How could you let you know, these people buy, you know, the 2001 next uh, crypto coin and there'll be backlash there. Um, I think that unlike the other prior period, I think deflation is sort of dead. We have a lot of debt and there can be debt issues that effectuate themselves through deflation or monetizing or inflation or defaulting. And default is not an option. I just tend to think we're in an inflation cycle and kind of expect bonds just to be a kind of a bad place for everybody to be going forward. I don't think yields back up big time. I just think we're kind of in an inflation. I call it stag reinflation. And when it's stag, it's not good for the market. Um, when it's reflation, it's, you know, people latch onto it and chase things that correlate well with reflation. And you just have to ride it. Um, it's, it's interesting. Inflationary environment, we're speaking literally minutes after that the latest CPI numbers for May were published. U.S. May consumer prices increased 5%. From the year earlier, core CPI was up 3.8% over the year. Uh, this conversation and idea of transitory inflation, you're not necessarily buying it. Uh, but let's just say that it's an idea that, you know, as things get expensive, maybe prices come down, but they necessarily, they might come down, but they're not going to be what they were a year ago. <laughs> they're still going to be higher. I, I tend to agree with that. And, and the conversation I have with the small group of people that I chat with is I, I think one of the, I think the Fed sort of doesn't believe, but does believe that everything will be transitory. And if you say something enough, it sort of becomes true. And I think a lot of it will be transitory. And, but that is factoring in the fact that lumber, you know, went to 2000 and now it's been yeah. it down several days in a row and it's corrected and people are like, Oh, okay. Now it's, you know, it's imploding, but it, even where it settles is kind of the key issue of how much sticks in the system. And I was taught early on reading, you know, economics folks, um, commodity inflation does come and go, but I think some of this is going to stick supply chains were, you know, broken, um, trade wars, uh, have unfolded. A true inflation does need an l- element of wages sticking, and that's where I believe. Um, and unfortunately, I was early on this idea, and 
I got a lot of pushback, but I, I think wages are going up and I think cost structures are going up. And I do think that some degree of it is going to stick and it'll just be a new adjustment. Yeah. I'm not super bearish on the economy. I, I just feel like you had COVID, everything got compressed down. We've rallied a ton, priced in a lot of post COVID. And now we just got to do the subtle in of what, what sticks and what doesn't and what people's expectations are. I, I think inflation is going to be higher than it was. You know, it's not going to be, you know, I don't think it'll be 10, 20% like some people believe. And I think people will just have to adjust in multiples and earnings will have to compress into it. And I'm just way more worried about the, the speculative, um, you know, get rich overnight and the market just feels vulnerable. And I think, even the small, you know, 100, 150 bit move in yields across the curve over a year's time period, at first will probably look like the end of the world and probably could weigh in. And so I think yields bleeding into the system and rising will kind of be the, the, the source of a new regime going forward. And I think eventually we'll get, you know, we'll get used to it. Uh, it's interesting that you you mentioned this kind of this mentality in the markets of get rich quick and we, last year we saw it with well i mean frequent we continue to see it with the number of call options out of the money call options being bought uh, a lot of that momentum is now into the crypto space and all the volatility that goes on there uh joe you and i are old enough to kind of live between that uh uh, analog turned digital world, you know, children of the eighties type of thing. Uh, and, uh, but you know, so we're obviously old enough to where we have never just been living our entire lives completely connected, uh, via internet access, you know, glued to our pocket or our hip. Uh, have you, what, what's your kind of your holistic thoughts here on really the, the speed of information in, uh, you know, s- society expecting things quickly and in return and not really caring um, about that volatility or what the ramifications could be. Have you given any thought to really this generational shift here and and what it means for markets? Yeah. um, Not a lot. I, I think (laughs) I've heard, I I mean, I think of the term hodl and I, I kind of chuckle um, because I think everyone is, you know, blown up on a trade before and they bought in and, it, you know, it dropped 20% and they thought, well, you know, it, it was a trade when they went in and now it's an investment and the math, you know, something down 20 needs to you know, rise almost, you know, 40 and so forth. Um, what happens though is people will hold those bags for a while and everyone's held a bag. Um, and if, you know, I'll use Bitcoin as an example because the new, younger folk love the volatility of crypto. But what they're really saying is they loved the volatility and price movement upward. And now they are experiencing some of the two-way and, and, you know, up and down and more recently down and the expectation that every dip, you know, is bought. Um, and I'm always reminded of the great cartoon that came out of uh, Zero Hedge back in 2009 and 2010 of the little two cartoon characters, and it was, you know, by the effing dip. And I think this 
new crowd um, while they've never seen that little cartoon. That's the mentality. And what will happen probably if, you know, if crypto doesn't immediately abounce or whatever the flavor of the day is, you know, weed and shrooms or even, you know, uh, silver mining stocks, uh, they'll sell at the bottom or they'll just commit and hold it and wish they had, you know, taken the loss and, and moved on to something that was going from lower left to, to upper right. Uh, I do think the get rich facet and seeing your neighbor buy Dogecoin and make money. And I, I mean, I've been driving a lot um, and flying a lot lately. I actually see cars with uh, AMC um, painted on cars um, and uh, GameStop to the moon written on cars and people on uh, the road with signs, you know, AMC to the moon and, that probably doesn't end well, so to speak. It's uh, guerrilla marketing at the finest, Joy. It's unbelievable. Right. So I, I equated to back in uh, 2007 uh, the the men and women that were on the corner flipping the you know the sign saying that there was a new development opening and you would you know turn turn right in there to go buy your dream house uh, to see people doing that with. Uh, I guess they're called meme stocks or, you know, the AMCs and GameStops and BlackBerry. And I don't know what the, the one is today, but uh, I, I don't think that ends well. So. Uh, I, I do. I, we're getting short of time here and uh, there's, I have a number of things I also want to chat with you about. So we might have to hold on for a second round of conversation here, Joe, um, because I do want to get a sense before we let you go about your thoughts on the miners. You're an active, uh, you're an active trader on the GDX, uh, and 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 you also do a lot of work in West Dome as well. Uh, but let's stick with the GDX just for a big approach here. Um, we talked about inflationary environments. We've talked about uh, really kind of some red flag concerns you have based on prior experience. In, obviously, I'm, I'm recognizing my own bias here when it comes to uh, the yellow metal and gold and the leverage to the price of gold via gold miners. Where do you, do you tend to see the miners continue to be undervalued within that, quote, value trade? And uh, given everything you've laid out here in the last 30 minutes or so, what do you forecast the miners doing uh, based on the potential price movement of gold. We just spoke with uh, Jordan Royburn yesterday who says gold continues to be historically cheap. Uh, you know, I guess that's, it's a big question here, but give, kind of give us your lay of the land and what you're forecasting with the, uh, with the metal and the gold miners. Sure. Well, the, the first one's easy. I don't, I don't really do gold. Um, I mean, I have a view on what drives gold, um, but as far as where it's going, I don't have a great view. I like to spend a lot of time just on the miners and whether or not the backdrop is, you know, constructive to a move. Um, but I've also been frustrated uh, on that angle. So there's about a handful, half a dozen or so of miners. But I think I understand okay. Um, you know, that's KL, AGI. SSRM, uh, 
list um, and a few others, you know, simple, I think simple minds to understand, minors, three or four minds. And what strikes me is that, you know, unlike when the business models kind of went to crap in the, you know, the last cycle, most of them have no debt, uh, running with a lot of cash, and they got a lot of religion on uh, costs and running things the right way. So everyone really seems to be doing, for the most part, a phenomenal job of just minding their own business and running their businesses. What I think I've been frustrated with and that didn't happen as much as I thought last year would be kind of the re-rating or appreciation for the positive steps that have happened there and just watching the miners kind of bleed for six, seven months. And uh, it actually led me in February to undertake sort of a study and just dig into what it is that I, I personally want to accomplish in the space and not be frustrated and try to find a way to be involved when it makes sense to be involved. And, you know, I've kind of come away with a hundred percent different conclusion that a lot of the times I don't think fundamentals matter to the price of the stock, which seems odd and it seems kind of, you know, Oh my God, that's crazy. But I felt like the miners did a lot of good things last year in the back half and all the stocks did was just bleed down. And I just sort of believe that this is a unique space. It's very emotional. And I think a lot of it is cycles and timing. And when you say cycles, people kind of roll their eyes. And I think it's a lot of sentiment. And I, I often just think a majority of the time, you can't really point to the narrative that is going to latch on and make it all make sense to people. And so, I just don't have a great handle on where things are going. I've just resigned myself to the fact that um, I think it's a good trade now. I think there's a great trade coming in 2022, 2023. And I think it really comes down to as an alternative space where no one really pays a lot of attention, at least, you know, uh, big money. And when those models get appreciated and you know, some of the money from big tech attempts to go find a counter-cyclical trade. Um, it can move them really, really fast. And then at that point, they will get overvalued and they will be pricing in, you know, a future that probably is not realistic. Um, mm-hmm. And then they will start to do the, the silly things that they did, you know, back yeah. in the day. And I want to be really, really long when they start to do those things and, you know, be a participant in, some of the bad decisions that they make at the end of the cycle because yeah. that's when the price appreciation comes. I, I welcome those days to happen here, Joe, but I also <laughs> hope that I am uh, uh, self-confident to know when it happens to just uh, be smart enough to, to sell, right? That, yeah. And that's one of the take, hardest things to do. Take the trade. Take the trade. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Joe, thanks again. I'm really glad we could do this. This was a very heartfelt, thoughtful conversation. Um, I, I hope we can do it again. Uh, that was great. Thanks for having me. And uh, anytime. All right. Uh, everybody, if you have not followed Joe, he's on Twitter with the at sign that underscore gray underscore beard. 
Uh, he's one in a million. Uh, he's a great he's a great man, and uh, really appreciate him doing this because he. Uh, I don't know, have you ever done a podcast like this, Joe? No, no. Uh, I've always. Oh. <laughs> it's funny we 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 never uh, in my old days we didn't uh, we didn't talk to management we didn't get on conference calls and so I always sort of went with uh, just quiet approach. Of, you know, yeah. stay on the sidelines, do your homework, and you know, be quiet. Yeah, well, I appreciate you doing this one. It's uh, it really means a lot to me, and and hopefully the uh, listeners all uh, get a lot of respect and value out of this, which I think they will. Thanks, Joe. Have yourself a uh, great weekend, my friend, and uh, look forward to catching up with you and, and seeing everything you put out here on on the online Twitter handle. All right, thanks, Jeff. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.